It is very yeah. interesting. It's a very big difference mm-hmm. in what but, we think and what they think. And yeah, tell us what's going on around here. Pray for us and then teach us a little bit. Yeah. As Mark said, uh, about five minutes after church is over, uh, that's why the blue jeans, I, uh, I slip out the back door here and catch a shuttle to the airport. Yeah, they're picking me up here on my way to Kathmandu, Nepal. But you're going to see pictures uh, throughout the sermon today. Uh, I go over once a year and teach at a college there, do a pastor's conference. And so I leave today, and you're going to hear about it, Hindu country. So it's good. Before we get into that, though, uh, on the back of your bulletin, a couple things I want to highlight. There's always good things on there. I always pick a couple. One is on the very bottom of that page, um, when I get back, and uh, I'm gone about 12 days, so when I get back on February 22nd, I think it is, we start. I'm teaching a class on the basic theology. What do we believe? As a church and as Christian, what are the core of our beliefs and why are they important? After hearing about Hinduism today, you'll have some contrast, the ways to thinking about it. So you're invited to come. If you move to the very top one, um, we need help. We would like to provide child care for our young families that want to come but have kiddos running around. So uh, be thinking and praying about doing child care. Honestly, the class is really boring. You want to do the child care. That's a lot more. I'm not talking to you young parents, by the way. <laughs> so you'll want to be there for that. Uh, Mark asked a question just a minute ago, or he made the statement about why we get people up here to tell our stories, because our, our stories relate to each other. And have you ever thought about why we do that? Why do we stop and pray? Don and Patty Wolf were in the first service, and we stopped and prayed for Don. He's fighting for his life. No question about it. And until we get the green light, we're going to keep pleading with the Lord. Here's my personal prayer for Don as I talk to the Lord. You know, God, um, as we get older, it's harder to, to stay in this county. And we have Don. He's a little bit older than I am. We need him. No, you can't have him. It's pretty simple. No. <laughs> Just deal with the cancer and leave him here. We have plans for him. And so we bring people up here. We pray for them. Yes, we do want the Lord We want to engage the Lord in the process. But just as importantly, we want you to have a sense that we as a church, we really are interested in grace and redemption. You heard Maggie's story this morning. Now, I know many of you, and I know that that you have a story of your own. Some of you are struggling with sin. Some of you are struggling from the repercussions of past decisions. In fact, if you were here last week, one of the young ladies stood right here, and I asked her, why do you want to be baptized? And she said, I... I've done things I regret. And I turned around and I looked out there. I said, how many of you feel that way? And I think almost every hand went up. We do, don't we? And so uh, this is a place where we find grace. And this is a place where we find redemption. You know what redemption is? Very simply, you get yourself in a jam. Somebody comes along to help you. That's what it means. Somebody comes along to help. That's redemption. That's what God does with us. And so we want you to grasp the culture that we're building, that we're working very hard on here. And um, every one of you, if, you're, if your marriage is in trouble, you've heard me say this, if your marriage is in trouble, don't feel ashamed. Mine's been in trouble. It's Nancy's fault. But <laughs> she's not here. No, I think it's actually always been mine. I'm waiting for the day when... Keep waiting. (laughs) If If your marriage is struggling, don't feel ashamed. 
if your family's in trouble, we've been there too. We have. If uh, whatever it is that you're struggling with, you're not the first, you're not the last, and you're not the only. And uh, we have people here in our church who have been through that. We know how to walk with grace and redemption in the lives of people. Just come get help. Don't keep burying it. That's really the message. That's why we bring people up here. So I want to stop and pray. Uh, Before we pray, I want to bring to your attention, some of you may know Bob and Paula Buresh. Uh, They're an older couple in their 80s. He's very tall. Um, They don't talk much. They're very quiet, very sweet. Uh, Friday, they lost their oldest child. And um, there are some laws in the universe that should never be violated. We should never have to say goodbye to our children. Just shouldn't have to do that. So I spent some time with them on the phone and um, just let them cry. And I have their permission to share that with you, that we would lift them up together as a family. So let's do that. Father, we do lift up Bob and Paula uh, right now as they're back home um, making the arrangements for their son. Uh, Lord, that's painful. I heard their tears. I listened to the anguish of their heart on the phone. And um, God be with them. We beg you, Lord, pour out your grace because they need it right now. They need a lot of it. Just stand with them during this time. Father, we continue to lift up Don and Patty Wolf as Don fights for his life. Lord, and, and I mean it, until we get a green light that he's out of the woods and safe, we're going to keep begging you to leave him with us and just heal him of this cancer. Father, we pray for Maggie. Uh, she represents a whole bunch of us here that have made decisions that when we talk about them, it just brings tears to our eyes. Thank you for grace. Thank you for showing us your love in ways that the rest of the world can't understand. Thank you for the Women's Resource Council. What great news, Lord. Pray that you would continue to bless them, continue to be with them, continue to uh, meet their financial needs, Lord, and um, continue to give them opportunities to, to minister to these young women. And, Father, for the rest in our congregation who are uh, struggling in various ways, um, for those that may here be here that don't quite know you uh, and are trying to figure out who you are, Lord, just be mindful of uh, all the needs of our church. And thanks for being a gracious God who loves to step in and help us. And uh, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we're finishing a series, um, <clears throat> The Gospel in the Nations. What we entitled it, and we looked at several different religions. We could have looked at a whole bunch more. We picked the ones we did because those of us that were up front have experience. We as a church have experience with those religions. Today is Hinduism. It's the last Sunday. Our, our prayer, our hope is that you have not taken this as kind of facts to persuade people, uh, but rather that you've learned something about how to engage people that have a different belief system than you. You know, everywhere I go around the world, you know what I find out? Everybody's trying to figure it out. Everybody is. Um, As Peter said, we have the words of life. We have found that truth as Christians. I believe that or I wouldn't be standing here. I'm with people all the time. I'll be, you know, I leave today for Nepal. I'll get there Tuesday night. That's all it takes to get there. I'm going to be in countless airports, and I'm going to be talking to people. I have no idea what the Lord is going to put in front of me, but one thing I know for sure is they're trying to figure it out. And, uh, and sometimes they're banging their head against the wall in an empty philosophy. Sometimes they're making bad decisions because the, the philosophy that they believe is moving in the wrong direction. By the way, the first set of pictures are from India, and the second set are from Nepal, both of which are Hindu, Hindu cultures. 
So I hope what you've walked away with is a sense that your love for people is more important than your ability to argue. All you got to do is love people and ask them what they believe. You'll be, aston- you'll be astonished at what you'll hear. Uh, you don't even have to have the answers. It's okay. Just asking the questions, they'll figure it out on their own. Because we have a God who cares about every human. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Our God cares about every human on the planet because he created them all. And he's already doing his thing in their life to get their attention. So when they want to know, engage them. If you don't know the answer, say, great question. Don't have a clue. I got to go find that one out. Nothing wrong with that. No shame. But talk to them about their faith. Don't be afraid to tell them about Jesus. Don't be afraid. They don't know who he is. They don't know who he is. Okay, a brief word about the history of Hinduism. Hinduism is a very ancient religion. Uh, We're not quite really sure where, how it began. Uh, The term Hinduism actually was coined by the British when they were a part of the British Empire, when India was. They just saw all these lots of people worship uh, millions of gods. Um, Every region they went to, their kind of perspective was a little different. And so what they knew is they weren't Christian, they weren't Islam, and they weren't uh, Buddhists, so they must be something else. We'll call them Hindus. And so that's a kind of like a big bucket that they threw all this into. But Hinduism, it was founded in India somewhere between 1500 B.C. and 2500 B.C. It's a very ancient religion. Just to plot that on the map of our history, the Ten Commandments were given approximately 1500 B.C., same time. So for 1500 and earlier, for a 1,000 years, Hindu belief was already form, being formulated. It's a very huge, a very diverse family of sects. It's based on sex, S-E-T-C-T-S. Um, <laughs> yeah, well played. It's based on over 2,000 years of different writings, philosophies surfacing. Uh, Hinduism follows various belief systems and has no single creed or ultimate truth, but there are some overlapping patterns, which we'll talk about. It's very old, so it has an ancient pagan background in which all elements of nature, humanity, animals, all of that are represented by gods and goddesses. That was uh, the world back then. Now, this is very important from our standpoint. If we go back to 1500 B.C., that's when the first part of our Bible was given by God. Hinduism was developing for a thousand years leading up to that. All right, why is that significant? Well, most of you have heard me enough now to know that a very core tenet of my theology is redemption. And by that, I mean that God, whenever God steps into the world he made, which is our mess, whenever he steps into it through action or spoken word, he does it for the purpose of redemption. In other words, he, he steps in to fix something that's broken. And so if you never look at, so I get this question all the time, why do, we, why do I spend so much time looking at cultural backgrounds? If you don't understand the world in which the Bible was given, then it's very difficult to understand what he stepped in to fix. So for most of you, on Sundays, you'll hear me kind of give you a background to a passage, so that way when you look at the passage, you'll grasp what God was doing in the passage. That's called redemption. An example of that. One of the Ten Commandments has to do with murder, right? I know of no writing in the ancient world where murder was discussed from the perspective of morality. It's discussed from a practical perspective. So we're a family, okay? We're a family, and I've gotten to know Stan over here. and Tracy, one day I decided I don't like Stan, I kill him. 
Tracy and I aren't going to get along. Well, maybe we might. I don't know. I'm assuming that we won't get along, <laughs> right? Uh, so if we take each other's lives, that's wrong, but we have no compunction about taking the life of someone across the valley. Murder was not a moral issue. It was a practical issue when you look at the ancient law codes. So in 1500 B.C., when God introduced murder and the morality of murder, he just gave a gift to the world. That is what is unique about Christianity, is a long track record through God's word where he's bringing morality to the table and helping us make sense of a world that's a mess. So if God starts speaking at 1500 B.C., that's when the Bible begins to be written, and Hinduism is, begins to be framed prior to that, then you would expect very little in the way of morality, and that's what you get. No discussion of sexual morality, for instance, things like that. So it's very important to understand where, that, where Hinduism fits in. It's ancient. It's more ancient than Christianity is, uh, Judeo-Christian, our heritage. Although Hindus believe in as many as 330 million gods, they view Brahman as the one ultimate impersonal, and this is a key, a key term, impersonal spiritual reality over all of nature that defines all of nature. Hinduism is generally divided into two broad camps. One is called popular Hinduism, which is expressed through the worship of gods, offering rituals and prayers, and that's where most of the people live and find their existence within that. But there's also the philosophical side of Hinduism, which comprises of more a very complex belief system of meditating, the practice of yoga, studying ancient philosophical texts, and that sort of thing to, uh, to figure out. Hinduism is very complex. It's extremely complex. According to recent estimates, there's approximately 1 billion Hindus living worldwide. It's the third largest religion in the world. So about a billion. Let's talk for a moment about the basic beliefs of Hinduism. It's hard to pin down Hinduism, uh, Hindu beliefs because there's so many and so varied positions often contradicting one another, and it depends on where you are and which region you're at. So if you're in one country, uh, one part of a country, their beliefs will be slightly different than another part of the country. Um, but that's okay. That's acceptable to them. They believe all paths lead to God and all practices are okay if the devotee is sincere, whether good or bad. Life is seen as temporary and all life necessarily involves suffering. That's a part of life. We all suffer. Most Hindus are pantheistic, which means they worship many gods. As I said, there's about 300 million gods, 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon of deities. Some of them you've heard about. You may have heard of Lord Ganesh, the elephant god, or the monkey god. Uh, there's Shiva, Vishnu, Krishna, Brahma. Those are some of the key gods. The cow is considered sacred. It's really interesting when you walk through a Hindu country. Uh, in most Hindu countries, it's against the law to even touch a cow. Can't help them, can't use them, can't feed them can't care for them. When I was over there two years ago with uh, Bill and Alicia Spear, they went with me. He's a vet, veterinarian, um, who's also a great Bible teacher, by the way. And, uh, and so he's looking at these cows, and they have diseases and parasites, and every cow we saw was pretty sickly. Now, I don't know much about animals. I'm not a cow guy, okay? But I know our cows look like that, and their cows look like this. And he said, that's because they're sick. He said, it's far better to be in a country where we treat our animals with dignity and respect here they're a god, and you can't touch them. So we're driving on a highway. Cow walks out and just sits in the middle of the highway. If there's no room to go around it, you've got to stop and wait. Or you drive around it. It's pretty interesting. 
A core tenet of Hinduism is that ultimate reality, which they call the concept of Brahman, is an impersonal oneness that transcends all distinctions, including the differences between us. It transcends all of that. It's an impersonal, very impersonal oneness. To put it another way, all of reality is on a continuum, if you will. There's no distinction between one another and other parts of existence. So therefore, humans, in concert with the rest of the universe, are a continuous extension of Brahman, an impersonal God. That's including all the gods, by the way. Thus, our individual selves are simply an illusion. We're all an extension of Brahman. We are an illusion. That becomes important, and we're going to come back to that. We're an illusion and are actually one with the impersonal cosmic consciousness of the universe. According to Hinduism, Brahman alone exists. Everything else is an illusion. There's no beginning or end, only recurring cycles of creation and death. They believe that God is not separate from creation. God and creation are one and the same. There is no evil. All is acceptable since all is God. So life becomes an endless cycle of reincarnations until a person is able to escape it and merge into nirvana. If you are here two weeks ago, we talked about Buddhism and nirvana. That means nothingness. So the whole goal is to escape the cycle of reincarnations and become nothing. Boy, it's very different than our position, isn't it? We are worlds, universes apart on that. To break this endless cycle of birth, death, and reincarnation, it is necessary for a person to do charity and meditate to reach a higher level of consciousness. And this is the purpose of yoga. This is why yoga was developed. Now, I'm not trying to trash any of you that practice yoga. The yoga we do here is a little different. Uh, The practice of yoga in its various forms is considered very important to reach the goal of a higher level of consciousness or nothingness. The various positions found in yoga are modeled after and designed to teach about the key gods of Hinduism. So every position is designed to teach you something. The devotees in India of strict yoga groups are forbidden to eat meat, eggs, fish, uh, intoxication, none of that, uh, no alcohol, drugs, gambling's not allowed, there's no sex outside of marriage, uh, and sex within marriage is only for the purpose of procreation, to produce children. Yoga practice of yoga is designed to lead to a higher level of consciousness. Again, think how different it is with us. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Another core tenet of Hinduism found in the Hindu writings is that the goal of humanity is liberation from this endless cycle of death and reincarnation. Liberation is attained when we realize that our individual selves are an illusion. What you're looking at up there is you're looking at a picture of the Hindu temple in Kathmandu. Um, It's a place where they sacrifice live animals. Show uh, Show the one from India. Um, we have another picture. This is a temple, one of the four great pillars in the great city of Madurai, India. This is the huge Hindu temple, 3,600 gods. There's four of these. Uh, just so you know, this is about 10 stories tall. And uh, those are the pictures of their gods. There's 3,600 of the gods. So in, when you're looking in India, at the, in Madurai, they worship a whole pantheon of gods. But when you're in Kathmandu, 
they don't quite think that way. They believe in the pantheon of gods, but they worship the god Kali, who's a woman, a female god, very fierce, and they think that she will protect them from all the other gods because they're kind of thinking the other gods might come after them. So different, a different approach to that. Um, our goal is to be liberated from this endless cycle of death and reincarnation. Liberation is attained when we realize that our individual selves are an illusion and all is one. Until such enlightenment is achieved, karma dictates our deeds in the uh, karma dictates that our deeds in the previous life determine whether we are reborn as human or animal. Now, the way we use karma in our culture is pretty simple. It's kind of like what goes around comes around, right? We use it very loosely. But the technical uh, doctrine of karma is very simple. You are predetermining the future right now, and you have very little control. We'll just say it another way. What is happening to you right now has already predetermined based on a previous life. Okay? You can't escape it. You just can't escape it. Their ultimate hope is to get off the cycle of reincarnation, to extinguish the illusion of personal existence, and to become one with the impersonal Brahman to reach nirvana, which is nothingness. That's the goal. Because the reincarnation, we all suffer. Every reincarnation involves hardship in life, and we want to get away from that. The caste system is very important in Hinduism. It ranks society according to occupational class, but it also shows something else. Where you are in the caste system is based on your karma, what you did in the previous life. There's over 2,000 levels in the caste system. The top level is the Brahmin or the priestly caste. Then you have all the working castes below that. Where you are is based on uh, karma, and it lets others know what you did in the past life. So if you're a wealthy person and you're happy, you obviously were a pretty good person in the last life. If you're at the bottom section of the caste system, you obviously were not a very good person in the last life, and we know that about you. So it's a way to identify within social structures. This picture here is at the uh, Hindu temple in uh, Nepal. Um, They have poor people on almost every step, up and down all these steps, and most of them have been maimed from the day they were born. They maimed them on purpose. If we actually have pictures, I didn't put it up there, of one person without arms and legs, and all they do is sit there and beg. And um, you're born into your caste system, and so you have to suffer. They're suffering. That's their lot in life. Um, The lowest caste are called the untouchables because they're extremely poor. They're discriminated against, and we don't want to touch them. The higher the person's caste, the more the person is blessed with the benefits and luxuries of life. Obviously, the lower you are in the caste, the less you have. So... They can tell where you belong in the caste system by what you're doing. Your job is defined. The caste defines it. You can't change castes. You don't know how you can't do that. If your job you're allotted is based on where you are in the caste system. So they can look at you and they know exactly which caste you're in. This system was outlawed in 1948 when India became a nation. So legally, it's against the law. But every Hindu believes in it. It's important to the Hindu people, and it's recognized as the proper and only way to categorize society. Okay, let's talk for a moment about the implications in culture, again, which I believe are the true test of a religion. The doctrine of reincarnation is central to the Hindu belief system and has many implications within society. For example, charity of those less fortunate, those less fortunate, is unheard of. 
It's unheard of. Here's why. You have the caste system. Whoever's down here is here because of karma. You're up here because of karma. If you help this person, you go down in the next reincarnation. The only way this person can move up is to suffer. Suffer the fate, the result, the destiny from being a terrible person in the last reincarnation. The best thing this person can do is to spit on this person and make life hard for them. It's completely the opposite of the way we think in Christianity. So charity to the uh, less fortunate is unheard of. If a person does evil in this life, he will be reincarnated to a lower caste in the next life. Therefore, those in a lesser social or economic position deserve to be there and to suffer to make amends for the behaviors of the previous incarnation. This produces a very vile discrimination from our perspective. It's part of their theology. It doesn't feel like discrimination to them at all. So I have, I have pictures. I've probably got 5,000 pictures from all my years over there. And I have pictures of, uh, for example, a village where everybody is, a, is part of the lowest caste. And they, uh, there's a freshwater well built by the United Nations, sitting right there, never been used. Right next to it is a cesspool, literally, of water, stagnant with sewage in it. They'll drink that. They won't drink the, from the fresh water because they think that's going to hurt them in the next reincarnation. It's amazing. It's so counter to what we believe as Christians, isn't it? So this leads to a lack of concern at a, at a national level. It leads to a lack of concern with extreme poverty, AIDS, sexual morality, or any of the core morals that we're wrestling with as Christians. Um, it's not that they don't, aren't concerned. It's just the opposite. You deserve it. And the best thing we can do is, is help you to suffer and make sure life is hard. That's the only chance you have to escape in the next reincarnation to a higher level. Does that make sense? It's very different than the way we think, isn't it, as Christians? Very opposite viewpoints. So, what influence does Christianity bring to the culture of Hinduism? Well, our very core of our theology uh, is redemption. We believe in a personal God who is here to redeem the sin and brokenness that we've all experienced. Not to punish you in the next life, just the opposite, to help you. We believe in redemption. So you have Christians working all around various nations that are Hindu, largely Hindu, trying to undo the caste system. In, uh, in Madurai, where I showed you the temple with the 3,600 gods, the, the hospital there was built by, the, built by Christians. And so the bishop of the region is also the head of the hospital. He's the administrative head. So when I was there, he took me on a tour and said what they're doing. He also has the medical school. He oversees the medical school. So he's the bishop. He's the head of the hospital. He's the president of the medical school. He does all these things. And, um, and so they, uh, based on where you are in the caste system, depends on how much you can do and what you can do. The higher you are, the less government resources there are available to you. Um, but you're wealthy, so you don't need it, which is why it's done that way. By the way, when in Madurai, when you become a Christian, you have to go down and report it to the uh, local government office that you became a Christian, they automatically move you up in the caste system just below the Brahmin. They're not going to make you a priestly caste, but the top one, which is where you now qualify for the job as an engineer, doctor, that sort of thing. You get fired from your job as a taxi driver, 
because you're no longer in that cast, and now you only qualify for jobs up here. But what's the problem? You're not qualified. And there's no government funding to help you. Right? So you're immediately, immediately, the day you report it, you become destitute. Because there's nothing available to help you. And you can no longer have your job. Because you're not part of that caste anymore. So at the, at the hospital in uh, Madurai, in the, doc, in the medical program, they, uh, they have their resources coming from all their wealthy students. But then they're trying to take like five or six from the bottom caste who can actually meet the qualifications and requirements to become a doctor to begin to break this cycle. So they're bringing in untouchables to teach them. In uh, the college where I'm getting ready to go, I'll be there on Tuesday, they accept people from the lower caste into their student body. Again, it's unheard of. I have pictures of a blind student, never would get into a school. I mean, talk about being the bottom of the caste. You're blind because you really messed up. This person's blind, and I got pictures of them dancing with him. In the Nepalese system, the boys dance in India, not the girls. doesn't make sense to me. But it's the boys up there. The music starts playing in church. All the guys come forward and start dancing. And the, and the women all sit there. And, uh, and they've got this guy holding his hands. He's just blind as could be, singing his heart out, just twirling around, has no idea. Can't see. He can't see. One of the things I do, our, our ministry does over there, is we work with children who we've purchased out of the sex trade. trade. And uh, one of the young boys, he's about eight now, when he was four, he climbed up on a pedestal above the stove and tr- fell off into a pot of boiling stew. So not only does he have brain injury, but he's horribly scarred. And his mom and dad immediately said, we're done. He's not, he doesn't belong to us anymore. He's out of here. He obviously did something really bad in the last life. And so they took him in. Sweetest kid, every time I see him, he runs and jumps in my lap. Just wants to be there. Those are some of the examples of what Christians are doing to undo this horrible, horrible, heinous system. We believe in one personal living God, don't we? We believe in a God who loves us. We are his people. He is our God. And furthermore, he wants to know every human on the planet. Makes sense. He created us. That's the good news. We believe we are made in the image of God, and thus we have dignity and choice. Genesis 1. You see, you don't become different when you turn to Christ. You begin to move on that journey where you become something better. You begin to be restored to what you were created to be. You start loving more. You start being more affectionate and caring with people. You become more generous. You first start to forgive easier. That's what God intended every human to be. And when you turn to Christ, that's what happens. You, be, you become more and more of that. In Hinduism, there's not even the language to talk about human dignity. It's not even a concept in their writings. We believe that there is an eternal, ultimate existence with a personal God who has provided for our salvation. It's not an endless cycle ending in nothingness. It has purpose. It has direction. We end up in a relationship we call the new heavens and the new earth with God. He didn't forget us. See how different we are? Vastly different. Don't believe what you hear about Hinduism from Hollywood and Boulder. It's a lie. 
It is not a peaceful religion. It's one of the most vile religions I've ever seen. This is my 17th year, and I'm astounded every time at how vile it is. You walk into a restaurant, and the people that are seated there treat with complete indignity, rudeness, disrespect the servers because they're in a lower caste. They believe it's the right thing to do. Any religion that produces that level of discrimination has got to have something wrong with it. Don't believe what you hear. I believe the reason why Hinduism in the United States looks peaceful is because it's laid on a foundation of core principles that are uniquely Christian. Dignity of the human, putting the other person first, serving one another, loving one another. You think of those. Those are all unique to our Judeo-Christian heritage. Those aren't found in Hinduism. So when you have those foundations laid and you put Hinduism on top, it appears to be peaceful. Come with me to a Hindu country and see the truth when you don't have those foundational principles. It's vile. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son. Lord, thank you for caring about every human on this planet. I, the more I read your word and the more I see your heart and compassion, for the poor, those stuck in the cycles of sin, the brokenness all around the world, Lord, the more I see that, the more hopeful and excited I become that you actually care about this entire planet. We are grateful and very privileged and honored to be called your children. Thank you for giving us that great privilege. In your son's name we pray, amen.